Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So you're going to love this interview. It's with Stuart Crane, who started a company called DHS Software and grew it for 20 years, built it up, 75 employees, $15 million in revenue, and sold it for somewhere around 43 million bucks or around nine times earnings. In and of itself, a great story, but what you'll hear is that he'd actually gone through the process of trying to sell his business three times. And it was the third time, having made some course corrections in the way, on the way, that made it successful. Uh, he was so generous to share as much detail as he was with us. Um, there's one little secret where overnight he was able to increase the offer by about a million bucks, which we, we joke on the interview that it was, it was like turning, you know, 12 hours to turn a million dollars of revenue of of profit. So uh, have fun listening to the interview. Some great lessons from Stuart Crane. Stuart, thanks for joining me. Great, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about DHS. What kind of business was it that you sold? Well, DHS essentially was a software company. Um, we created software for home care businesses. So it's a B2B company where we had a, a system where the customers who were home care, basically medical companies, would enter all the information about their patients into the software and track everything about them. So the system did everything from patient management to filling prescriptions, managing inventory, and that sort of thing. So our business was B2B, and and it was kind of a software as a service business in the sense that we charged a service fee for the customers to use the application. And our customer base in the very beginning was just handfuls when we started selling the software. And this is back in the, the early 90s when we were in DOS and uh, we had green screens and, and back, in, back in the day before the Internet. And then as we grew, you know, we, we got into the hundreds of customers and our customer size was anywhere from a mom and pop home care or home infusion company to a very large hospital uh, health system or even some of these payers and insurance companies that had their own pharmacies. So some of our larger customers had three, four, five hundred employees doing literally hundreds of millions of dollars in business. And um, so, so the so the business was essentially a software business. Got it. Got it. And and just give us a sense of your trajectory. Um, when did you start? And then I, I think you you sold it. You'd gotten it up to seventy five employees. Maybe just talk a little bit about that journey. When did you start and, and how long it took you to get up to you know, the, the, the rate at which you, you decided to sell it? Sure. Great. The, the, the trajectory was very slow and steady. And we started out and it was just my partner and I in our basement writing the software for the, actually the company that he worked for, which was a home care company. And it was just kind of a side project um, that I was working for as a programmer and he was working at the home care company. So he knew the business really well and I knew how to write software because I, w- I was coding. I was a programmer. So in the very beginning, it was just he and I when we launched the company and, and started selling the software to other home care companies all around the country. And then just it was a little by little, we, we got new employees as we needed them. So for example, you know, he would do the selling and the training of the software and I did the coding and the, and the technical support. And very quickly, we needed more salespeople. We need more trainers. So he would hire those people and get them onboarded. And then I needed more programmers and I needed more uh, customer support or technical support people to, to help as the 
customers and the clients were calling in with questions and wanting upgrades and so forth. So basically, we went from just a few employees in the early 90s. We started the company in uh, April of 93. And probably, you know, in the in the 90s, we got up in the 10, 20 range as far as employees. And then in 2000s, we really started to to ramp up, but still s- slow and, and steady. And like you said, by 2013, when we when we sold the company, we had about 75 to 80 full time employees. Got it. And and maybe talk a little bit about the capital structure. I mean, it was you and your partner in the beginning. Did you bring in outside capital? Was there a, a venture capitalist in the table, a PE firm, or how did how was that structured as you grew? Sure. Basically, my partner and I, when we started the business, we decided we wanted to go 50-50 because there was no you know, waiting that he did more or I did more and we brought more to the table. He had a certain you know, skill and I, and I had a certain skill. So we said, let's just go 50-50 and whatever happens, at least it's, it's, uh, it's equal. And you know, people say, oh, that's a crazy thing to do. But we found it worked really well. And I had worked for a company previous to this business that I started that um, went out and got venture capital, and they raised like seven to eight million dollars, and they they went flat. And I learned so much from that business. Not going to go into that. That my goal was to always have no other outside investors, no debt, and just have it Jeff and I, and and build this business just he and I. So the the entire time we ran the company for twenty years. It was Jeff was 50%, I was 50%. We had no debt and no outside investors. Now, at one point, and I can get into it, we did several acquisitions where we funded them with some bank debt, but um, that was later in our years and we were able to pay off those fairly quickly. But um, that was the only long term debt we ever had in the history of the company was to, to borrow to acquire two businesses ourselves. And how big a company were the ones that you acquired in a scale of, just to give us a sense? The two companies we acquired combined probably did oh four or five million combined in total annual revenue, um, and they were our competitors. So this was an acquisition of of competitors that we were beating in the marketplace. But their customers just you know were slow to switch to our software. So we just went to the owners of those businesses and and made them an offer and worked things out. And um, so we got probably two or three hundred customers quote unquote overnight. From doing these acquisitions, we spent about three million dollars. I think one was one point seven, and one was like one point two or something million. We spent about three million to acquire these two customers, and that really, you know, helped us with our trajectory as far as we got employees at that time, a lot more customers, and a lot more rep. Revenue really within you know just a, just a matter of months. Hmm, that's interesting. Probably a strategy a lot of people just kind of disregard, thinking that's for bigger companies. But for you guys, you uh, you leveraged it. Talk to me about your relationship with Jeff. Um, did you have a shotgun agreement in place where you know you could buy one another out for uh, for a price that you raised, or what, what was the nature of the, the partnership agreement you guys had that worked so well? Yeah, we had a partnership agreement. You know, we had it done up by a local attorney that uh, walked us through the process, and and it was pretty boilerplate. We made a few tweaks, but it was pretty much your boilerplate uh, buy sell agreement, partnership agreement, and we agreed to it all. And we kind of just signed it and tucked it away. And we we really got along very well for pretty much all twenty years. And he had his skills and his, you know, where he excelled, and I knew what I I had the skills of. So we complemented each other, and it was also 
nice in making decisions, we, we, we would say, well, let me check with my partner. <laughs> so that went on. But our actual partnership agreement was fairly straightforward. It was a 50-50 deal. And then we did have some provisions in there for like the Mexican shootout and those kinds of things. But they were never really, you know, implemented. So, so just for, for listeners who may not know what a Mexican shootout is or a shotgun, just can you describe uh, in layman's terms what that means? Well, from what I recall, and you know, like I said, we never really implemented this, but it's a situation where one 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 of the partners wants to get out, and the other might not want to. But you you basically don't have a valuation on the company, so you basically put a number in an envelope, and each of you put a number in an envelope that's sealed and hidden, and you present it to a, a you know, party, a, you know, standby like a attorney, and uh, they open it, and whichever amount is greater basically acquires the company and purchases it and buys the other one out. Is that, is that way you, you see it? Well, yeah. I mean, in a traditional shotgun, I mean, one partner would raise a price and say, look, I want to buy you out for a million bucks. And uh, at that point, the partner can then take the, 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 the offer and say, here, yep, that sounds fine. I'll take my million bucks and walk. Or you then, as the making, person making the offer, have to accept the same offer you're giving. So gotcha. you then yep. have to look at that person and say, I'm willing to walk if you, if you give me a million bucks. And those deals can work well if both partners are are roughly equal uh, in terms of their personal financial situation. So it's not you know one uh, one guy with a hundred million dollars in the bank and another guy who's struggling to make his mortgage because the guy with a hundred million dollars can always outbid the, the other. But if you get a similar life stages and similar economic situations, that can be uh, a good way to approach a partnership deal because that both parties feel uh, like they're not going to get un, uh, unfairly taken advantage of because of their personal financial situation. But I mean, obviously, lawyers can structure these things in lots of different ways. I was just I was just interested in in how it worked with Jeff. So mm-hmm. walk me through a DHS. You've got this amazing business, seventy five employees, fifteen million in revenue. Things are going well. 2013, something happened and you it made you decide to sell the business. What was the triggering event? Okay. Well, it kind of led up to, to this. This is not something overnight that just triggered boom and it happened. We had been approached by competitors, by uh, private equity, by um, just uh, strategic investors, strategic companies for literally five, 10 plus years because of the things we were doing. The A, hey, would you like to sell? Would you like to take some chips off the tables? And then, you know, they, they use that terminology all the time, take some money off the table. So we've been getting approached, you know, literally weekly at, you know, for a while there when the market was hot. And so we'd always looked at it. And um, we had two failed attempts to sell the business in kind of the, I think it was 09, 2010, 2011. Timeframe. The first attempt was where we hired an investment banker broker to do a process for us and take us out to the market. And for whatever reason, we've got we've got interest, but not enough for the price that we were looking to get to really make it worth it. So it wasn't that big of a deal. We just it was it was really good to learn about the process of taking it to market and using an investment banker and having you know a book on us and all that. And it just kind of went and went, and we never got it. So that was fine. And then few few years later, we got approached by a, a fairly close competitor that was private equity backed or VC backed, I believe. Um, and they really came at us hard. They wanted us bad. So they, you know, wheeled and deal or wined and dined us. And, and we went into, they put together an LOI. We signed this LOI because the, the, the valuation was really kind of where we wanted to see it. 
and that was right you know time and place and we just thought hey this this is a good number so we went down this road and we had attorneys working together literally every day and one day we had a conference call with them and you know, it was in the morning and the first thing they said on the call was well guys we had a we had a call with our board last night and we're going to put pencils down we're going to just shut it down and stop the process you guys need a perfect deal we need a perfect deal and there was all kinds of red ink all over the stock purchase agreement it was it was just not you know proceeding towards a close so they just put a stop on it we didn't stop on it they did and so we were like whoa what the heck just happened so, you know, getting to the actual sale, we continued to get interest from other competitors. And one competitor in particular who was a publicly traded company, um, one day they just all of a sudden got bought out. And how does a publicly traded company get bought out? Well, they get taken private. They got taken private by a very large private equity firm that funded them for additional acquisitions. So we knew that was happening. And so they started coming at us hard. You know, we want to buy you guys. We just, you know, took private. And so we were talking more with the private equity guys that acquired this publicly traded company. And so we're like, well, we're not going to go through this thing again where, we just have one buyer. And so we went back to a process of going into um, an investment banker and a broker, but we used a different one this time. And these guys were fantastic. They were so good. They're out of Boston. Can, can you can you share? I mean, are, are you willing to share their names to give them a bit oh, of Oh, yeah, plug? absolutely. It was Covington and Associates. They're, they're pretty boutique. They're a boutique firm in Boston, Covington and Associates. They're very into the healthcare space and specifically um, high-tech um, home care, home infusion. And then they also did... Um, um, medical software uh, sales companies, company sales. So they were in our market and they knew our space. So they knew the big guys because we were looking to sell to companies like Amerisource um, Bergen and Cardinal Health and McKesson and some of these big Fortune 100 companies in addition to all the private equity and then all the competitors that were interested in acquiring us. So they knew the space and so they did a great job with you know the the teaser, with the, the book and the, the SIM, C-I-M, uh, and really work walked us through the process and we felt so much better going with them and then of course we had this one buyer out there that really wanted us bad so we were able to play you know this this whole space of other potential buyers that were you know, big companies like Cardinal Health that were also interested and this company knew they were interested. So that could drive the price up. So, you know, you get back to your question of what was the triggering event. And I, I heard you one time say that the two triggering events are, you know, a competitor comes along and then healthcare or medical scare by owner. But this was a competitor coming towards us. But the actual triggering event was the price because um, we've had competitors coming to, we had private equity, we had interest for many years. But Really, the triggering price, John, or the triggering event, John, was the price because um, we were making so much money and profit and throwing off so much on an annual basis. The money or the the the, the valuation had to keep going up for us to say, okay, we would sell this out because we were going to sell. Jeff and I were going to sell the business outright, lock, stock, and barrel. We were not going to go and say, okay, we'll take on some money and we'll bring somebody in or we'll do a merger. We were like, no, we're either going to sell the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel, or we're just going to keep you know, owning the business and throwing off. You know, he and I were making north of two, two, two and a half million bucks a year each in personal income. So we were like, the, the valuation had to be up there for us to basically sell. So that was the triggering event was really just the price was high enough that we would say, okay, let's do it. 
Got it. And then how do you value a company like DHS? I mean, was it a multiple of, of revenue or earnings? or what, how, how that Yeah, that's a great question. And um, obviously, in, in my mind, what I basically looked at that in this whole process was the kind of the, you get to the nut of it, it's the price is, is basically what someone is willing to pay for it. Now, that's simplistic and that's like, oh yeah, everyone can say that. But that ultimately is true. But then you have to say, okay, well, how do you get there? And you're right about um, you know multiples of earnings, multiples of revenue. So what we did, John, is when the acquisition of this pr- publicly traded company came about where the private equity firm bought the publicly traded company the good thing about the good thing about that was these numbers of the acquisition were public it was all you know to be seen because um, it, they were a publicly traded company so i went and did a lot of research on calculating what their multiple of the ibita was and was right around 9.2 9.3 times earnings and so what i did is i said well, okay let's let's basically multiply that by our earnings and it comes came in right around 41 42 million dollars so basically Jeff and I said, well, we should definitely be able to get that same multiple that the private equity firm bought the publicly traded company. So that's where we're going to put our number in our minds. We obviously didn't publicize that because this was a blind auction that we went through. And that was the great thing about using an investment banker is you have a blind auction where no one knows what everyone else is bidding. But we had in our mind, we're not going to sell for anything less than, we, I think we said 40, but we like to get 42, 43, 44. Got it. And then how did how did it all work out in the end? The, the investment banker ran a process. Uh, were there other bidders at the table along with your uh, the, the successful bidder at the end? Yes, we had. We started with about twenty five on the list that we identified, and we actually didn't even include that first company that came to us and then put the all stop. We didn't even put them on the list, so they didn't even know we were doing this. So we had about twenty five, and I would say about half of them were private equity or, or financial investors. The other half were strategic or or competitors, you know, actual companies. And so that whittled down. After you send out the teaser, you get so many NDA signed, and then we so out of those we probably had. 20 12 or 15 signed. They got the SIM and then they went through that. And then out of the 12 or 15, we probably had about eight or nine that we did conference calls and meetings with. Um, we had probably five or six that came into our offices and toured the, the operations. And we talked to them in our conference room and went through everything. And then we had to provide further information before the actual bid was due. So I think when we actually had the bids come in, we had about six or seven that that bid on 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 the on the firm. And at that point, was that a final offer from each of the six saying this is the number, take it or leave it, or or, or did Covington then try to gin those up some more by playing one off the other? Yeah, this is a funny story, John. We had um, we had the first offer came in immediately at the time they were allowed to come in from from the company that that ended up acquiring us for. Uh, it was forty two point five million, and and Jeff and I looked at each other. Okay, th- that'll work. So we were like, okay, that's that's the one we definitely can take that. And then the others started coming in, and they were like mid thirties, thirty eight, thirty nine, nowhere near even forty. And um, so that evening or that afternoon, it was five o'clock. They were all due. Our investment banking company, they basically called. Um, the company that was going to acquire us for that 42.5 and said, guys, you know, Jeff and Stuart really 
um, want to sell to you guys. You guys are definitely the ones they want to sell to, but you really need to do better on the price to make this happen. So, you know, rebid tomorrow morning, give us your best and um, we'll take it from there. So the next morning at like eight o'clock in the morning, we got a, an, another LOI, but it was basically the exact same LOI, except instead of 42, it said 43. And then of course they said, you know, it needs to be signed by 12 o'clock or it's, you know, it's expired. So they went from 42.5 to 43.5, literally overnight and the investment bank company essentially made their commission right there with that that one change and we would have taken the 42 you know so um so yeah they de they definitely you know kind of put it out there but it was a fully blind auction so it worked out that way how to make a million bucks in yeah in, in 12 hours or less i can exactly. see the, i can see the testimonial right now that's great right. fantastic good for yep. you well then, uh, so then, so for for those listening, a uh, couple, you know, a couple of these uh, terminologies we've been talking about, LOI of course stands for letter of intent, which is the the document that the acquirers put together, as it states to as an intention to buy the business. Uh, they're not obligated to do so at that point. They typically have an out. Stuart, in your case, did did the LOI give them an out that that allowed them, you know, six or eight weeks of due diligence in order to to vet. Uh, what was discussed leading up to the LOI? I don't think it specifically stated that, but it, it basically they can they can stop the process at any time. There was there was that understanding that at any time they can say no, we won't want to do this. There was no penalty. Um, we actually had that happened in the previous one that I, that I told you about. We had an LOI. It was at you know, but there was nothing in in there that says there's a penalty. So yeah, they could pull out at any time. But they you know they wanted to go forward with this. We wanted to go forward with it, and and unless they saw something in the due diligence process that says whoa, you know then they, they want to keep going. Yeah. And how was that due diligence process, Stuart? How would you characterize it? I mean, it's it's tough. There's no doubt. But what was good for our situation is that we had really good staff. We had one, um, our, our COO basically was not only our COO, he was actually also our in-house attorney or in-house uh, lawyer. And he basically ran the whole process as far as providing all of that due diligence to the buyer. And the buyer obviously had their attorneys and their CFOs looking at all these numbers and everything. So um, he, he basically worked I would say probably 10, 12 hour days for a month and a half just working on this transaction, which allowed Jeff and I to just kind of sit back. And we, of course, we had to, you know, answer questions. And there was a lot of terms that had to be nailed down as far as, you know, your reps and warranties in the stock purchase agreement that my, Mike is his name. Mike would basically go back and forth with the attorney and then he would put it all together and say, all right, Jeff and Stuart, here's the things that we are not on agreement on. And we would go by one by one. And then he would, just, you know, explain to us. Well, if we decide this, this is what. So there's a lot of give and take and back and forth. But the process is just it's just rigorous and it takes and takes time. And for us anyway, we were able to get through it in you know probably 60, 70 days, something like that, to a to a point where we had a stock purchase agreement that we were both you know were good to sign, and we picked a, a closing date, and and it and it happened. Fantastic. I mean, how. I'm sure there are so many lessons, but you went through two previous failed attempts, one in which you had an M&A person represent you, but it just didn't work. Uh, the other where you got right into the negotiation and, and the, the firm pulled out at the last minute. You know, I guess what lessons did you learn from those first two attempts that, that you took into this third and successful uh, kind of round of, uh, 
of selling a business. I mean, can you draw any lessons for, for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the combination of those two failed attempts were telling where one was with an investment banker, which we ultimately ended up doing. It just wasn't the time. So sometimes it's timing and the timing is just not right, even if you're doing things right. And and that just happened. It's not time to sell or you can't find that buyer. So in, in the case of the first investment banker, I really, the lesson is just, hey, it wasn't the right time. They did a pretty good job and we just couldn't find that buyer. It was 2009, right, Stuart? Yeah, something like 2009. Uh-huh. It's probably a tough time of the economy, not a lot of liquidity, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the bigger lesson was more dealing with that one the the negotiation with that one company. And I think that was the biggest lesson that that we learned in that if you just have one option and that's your only option, you, you are not gonna have the best result you could possibly get. The best result is to have multiple options, have as many options as you can, and the buyer knowing that you have other options. Okay, so so that was the case in, in the actual um, sale that we ended up having is the buyer knew we had not just a few other options, and we had some big time options with some big buyers. So so that was a lesson. I, I think um, what people don't you know, learn about until they get into the process is something called market. Of the attorneys talk about this a lot. Is they say what is market, and that terminology essentially means when you're looking at the um, the stock purchase agreement and all the terms and all the reps and warranties that you're making. Market means what is standard essentially. What is what has happened before in this situation? And when we were negotiating directly with the one company, they were one, very one sided, and our attorneys were like, "Well, that's not." market, meaning it's not standard. And so it should be moved back into market. So uh, for your listeners, when they get into the process of actually negotiating the stock purchase agreement, the market is very important that you're basically, you know, having terms that are basically already been established by the market. So that that's important. Um, and I think really just having good advisors, having good attorneys, good accountants, have obviously a good investment banker. We had a really good broker there. And having that team, some of the team would be on your staff, you know, your actual people that are working for you. And the other ones are obviously hired um, advisors like your attorneys, like your accountants and so forth. And having, having that team put together because you trying to do it yourself as just a you know, one man operation trying to sell your company, that is not going to get you the best result. You have to have people who have been there and done our, our accountants who have done, do, do all our taxes and do all our accounts. They've been through this many, many times. So, you know, just having them and they're more relaxed about things. It's just, you know, they know this stuff. Whereas, you know, if you're the seller, you're all nervous. Everything is such a big deal to you. Whereas they are very mellow about things and they can explain it and having them on, you know, as part of your team is great. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, for listeners uh, listening, the last thing you want is to be involved in a proprietary deal. And a proprietary deal is the technical term that an acquirer will use when they know that they are the only uh, acquirer at the table. And, and that's the worst position for you to be in as a business owner because – as you found out here with Stuart, you your negotiation gets gets elongated. They are, have all the negotiation leverage, and they can just stop at any time for any reason. What what you really want to do, and what I think Stuart you've done an amazing job at, is creating some competitive tension in the deal. Uh, your M and A firm got you know six firm offers. Everybody knows there's competing offers at the table, and nobody gets cute when it comes to uh, the negotiation because they know that the moment they stop negotiating with with you. 
you, there's five other guys at the table. So, I mean, kudos to you, Stuart, for picking a great uh, a great banker. How did you how did you how did you tell your employees? Were, were your employees in any way incentivized to the sale? Did they have stock options or anything like that? And 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 then how did you tell them? How did you go about sort of how and when did you tell them you were selling? Okay, in our company with about 75 or 80 employees, we have a senior management team of about six or seven, and those are the managers that manage each of the departments. And so in the beginning, when we were going through the process, when we were putting everything together, when we were doing all that, not even the senior management was informed of the whole process because we had been you know, approached before, and this had been going on for years with us looking at options to possibly sell the company. So there's really no reason to bring in a senior management team and let them know what's happening because at any time it could fit. You know, it's just there's no reason to talk to them about any of this. So f- until probably late stages of the SPA, of the stock purchase agreement being signed, late stages, like like probably within 30 days of the closing date, of the actual set closing date, that's when we brought in the the managers um, and basically let them know this is what's happening. And, and maybe a little earlier for a few of the senior managers who had to provide some of the due diligence information. But we tried to keep it as low-key as possible for as long as we possibly could because, you know, any – any word that gets out, you know, it could be everything could be great, but the the employees could say things that were not true. I mean, so rumors could go out that who knows what could happen. Like they could lose their jobs. Obviously, that's the biggest one is employees could lose their jobs. And then, you know, it just gets out of control and then the buyer could get spooked and all that. So in our case, we tried to keep it basically as as um, confidential as possible for as long as possible. Now, to your question of how we notified them, you know, the senior managers, I think one by one, there was only six, six or seven of them at the time. I mean, one of each time we would bring them into our office you know, Jeff and I, and we just sit them down and say, hey, this is what's happening. It's pretty much, you know, going to happen, although it still could not happen. But here's here's what the situation is. And we kind of would explain to them post-close what we thought was going to happen. But at this, obviously, you know, post-close, you have no control over what the buyer's going to do. So, you you know, lay that out. But here's what we've been told. And, and uh, we had been talking to this buyer for quite some time. So, we feel really comfortable comfortable with what they're doing. So you just explain it and say it's still confidential. This is not to be talked about with anyone else. And you tell them who else knows in the senior management team. We never talked to the whole senior management team all at once about it. We just did it individually. And they kept it you know, tight-lipped. And then when the rest of the employees found out about the transaction was literally the day of the close. So, you know, the, the buyer came in with probably five or six uh, people. Some of them were some of the transition specialists who actually worked just on the acquisitions that they made, um, the CEO of the company, and like I said, five or six people and some project managers. And we did, we signed all the paperwork that morning. We waited for the, the funds transfer to go through and be you know, approved by the, by the banking system that the money had transferred and then shook hands and all that. And then that was like at noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. And then we basically brought all the employees into our big area where, I, where we have our, our, um, like our monthly meetings and everything, brought them all in. We had chairs and it was probably a two plus hour um, meeting, quote unquote, is kind of a presentation. Jeff and I got up there and spoke and uh, thanked everybody and told them what had happened. And you know, there was definitely you know 
a few, uh, you know, tears here and there, you know, out there in the audience. And uh, it was it was shocker for for a number of people. And then other people, you know, they kind of expected at some point it would happen. And and they had seen suits coming in and out and so forth. But that was when it was announced as the day. And they were already employees of the new company literally um, that day. So wow, and 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 did they benefit at all in the sale uh, economically or or not? Just yeah, we we cool. allocated. Um, I'm trying to think how much it was. I think it was about a half a million dollars or so. We allocated to the employees for um, kind of a bone. It was essentially just a bonus, and we actually paid that out like right at the close. I think. Um, and it was tiered based on service. So it wasn't like we just divided by 75. We basically went down and did like a little spreadsheet. And we, we looked at all the people and, and basically it was on their tenure, how long they had been with the company. <clears throat> and then we, you know, we allocated an amount. So some people got, you know, tens of thousands, some people got a couple thousand and it just went down the line. Senior managers obviously got more and obviously older tenured people got more and then the newer people got less. But I think it was about a half a million that we, we bought. Bonused. Got it. Got it. And then, are are you in touch with any of the the employees today? Uh, do, do you see them from time to time? Yeah, a few of them. I mean, it's kind of you know hit or miss. You know, you have Facebook, and you have you see them at places. I actually, it was showed up one uh, one. Our, our, we have a big hockey team here in Columbus, and they had their Christmas party there, and I have season tickets, and I showed up at just to my season ticket to sit, sit in my seat, and they were all there at a Christmas party because they do Christmas parties sometimes at events, and uh, we had a great time chatting with all the you know. There's probably about thirty of them or so, and some of their spouses. But so you know, it just is hit or miss. A couple of them I definitely keep in touch with just to see what's going on, but nothing really serious where we're, you know, doing another business or anything like that. Right, right. I mean, was there a degree of resentment among the employees? I mean, they would have seen you guys get this big check, uh, you know, did you, did you feel any sort of resentment among among the employees? Not much. I mean, uh, John, we have been so good to our employees and, and, and created such a great place to work and we compensated them very well. They knew that, you know, of, of their peers in the marketplace, they were compensated very well. They were bonused and they were really thankful for what Jeff and I did to advance their careers in a relatively short amount of time, if they excelled, of course. And so, no, I mean, they were, they were more sad to see us go and have a kind of a big corporation bureaucracy had a company come in and change the rules and that sort of thing. But there was really no animosity towards, oh, you guys cashed out and got this big check because, you know, this was a 20-year-old business that Jeff and I were at the business literally every day. We weren't like some silent, you know, owners that were off, you know, now we did a lot of travel, don't get me wrong. I went to Hawaii a lot and we went skiing and we went cruises and all but we were in the office a great deal and made a lot of the decisions and they basically trusted us to run the business and make it successful and so they were happy you know for us and so no there really wasn't any animosity on you know taking this big check and then moving on they you know it was just one of those things yeah yeah and so tell me about life now i mean what what are you doing and and uh uh you know what are you up to well, you know, right after the sale, I'd actually um, developed a hobby in in podcasting. Actually, I know you do a podcast, and so I was working on a, a pseudo business. It was called TV Talk, and that was kind of fun to do because we created podcasts about TV shows, and that went on for about a year or so. And when we had fun with it, but there really wasn't a whole lot of money in it. And then I actually had a health scare, which was kind of ironic that 
you know, here I ran this business for 20 years and I was perfectly healthy. And then I had a, actually an issue with my heart and uh, ultimately had to have uh, open heart surgery and everything's fine and it worked out. But that kind of like, whoa, that's, that was weird. So I, I stopped doing the, the podcasting business and now um, just kind of spending time with the kids. My kids are uh, 12 and 14 years old. So they're middle school and they're, you know, doing all kinds of activities. So I'm really just enjoying my time essentially for now anyway, being retired. And certainly there's plenty of money to, you know, last us forever. And so really just looking at things, learning and doing a lot of reading and uh, spending time with the kids. Do you, do you anticipate doing another business? Potentially. I mean, it would have to be something I really passionate about and I want to, you know, commit to because it's just hard to do something, you know, kind of half. Now, there, there's a there's some businesses here in Columbus, Ohio, that are in part of kind of an incubator. So I've been looking at going in there and kind of being, a, you know, entrepreneur in residence and seeing if there's some some one of those that I can get involved with. Um, so but I'm going to take it slow and just, uh, you know, see what comes along. What about, uh, you know, I've heard it's very hard to be a very hard, you know, hard driving entrepreneur, 20 year career, and then kind of turn it off one day. Did you, did you, have you experienced any, I don't know, uh, down moments where you feel like, you know, you need to, there's a need to do something or, or yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. And that actually came about after, you know, right rent when we sold, that was more the case because that why I was, oh, I have to have something else. I was telling my wife, I'm like, you know, laying in bed going, I got to be able to do something. I got to have, so I can't, I can't just sit around the house, you know, and that went on for months. And I did this, this TV talk business and that really was my outlet and um, it didn't work out, but it really let me do that. But then that was a, probably a year to a year and a half. So over time, I eventually kind of calmed down to, Hey, you know, I can enjoy, you know, this retirement and, uh, you know, spend time with the kids. But you're absolutely right. Right when it happens and the close happens, you're like, oh, I got to have that next thing. And and luckily, I did have something that kind of kept my attention. It was fun to do. And then with my health scare, that kind of, you know, changed the thinking. So it took probably two years. Like It'll be the anniversary of the sale of the business is just next month for two years. So it'd be two years. And it does take time to kind of say, okay, you know, I don't have to be this hard driving entrepreneur and have another business. And, and luckily, you know, it just, it, 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 that's the way it worked out for me. Do you feel that the DHS is part of, of who you are? I mean, do, do you, like at cocktail parties, do you say, hi, I'm Stuart Cranja. I used to run this company called DHS or is it in the past now? I mean, it's you know pretty I mean? much in the past, but it, it's definitely, it will always be part of me. And I've learned so much from it. And um, it's kind of neat to, sometimes I think about John, I'm just driving around and literally, probably as as we've started this podcast, there's been literally thousands of prescriptions that have been filled with the software that I actually wrote myself initially. And there's, you know, thousands of people using that software every day at places like the Cleveland Clinic and, and all over the country country using the software to fill prescriptions and, and, and take care of patients. And that's really what I take from it. And, and it's kind of neat to feel that I created something that's still going on. Now, at some point, that software will be phased out and there'll be something else, you know, put in there. But that's kind of neat. But as far as, you know, introducing myself as the, the founder of DHS and all that, I mean, it really, you know, if somebody wants to know the story, I'll tell them the story. But, um, you know, I'm kind of humble and it's just like, yeah, I mean, it, it was a great ride. And I learned a lot, and now it's time to you know just learn more things. Yeah, yeah. Last question. It's a fun one. I mean, you get the big check. What, what 
fun thing did you go out and buy? What toy? What what trip? What what did you know? Get us a, a sense of what it's like to uh, uh, to really indulge yourself. What sure. did you do? Yeah, I mean, I you know, we really, my wife and I didn't change our lifestyle all that much. I mean, we we've been looking at at um, getting a place in Maui. We've we've always loved Maui, so that's one thing that we're, we're looking into. Although we haven't pulled the trigger on that, I think you know, one thing we did, Jeff and I, in building the business is we continually increased our revenues and and kept our our expenses down, so our profits were always going up and up and up. And like I said, at the time we sold, Jeff and I on our tax returns said we made two point five million dollars. So at the time of the sale, my income went from two point five million dollars a year, and that's you know that's coming in, that's cash coming in to zero. So it, there wasn't this sense of oh my god, I got you know twenty plus million dollars now. What uh, what can I spend it on? I mean, now it's like okay, now it's time to manage that money. And we did spend some time interviewing. Um, we changed wealth managers. That so we had some in Columbus, and then we decided to change to a company out of Boston, which we actually got a reference from the guys uh, from our investment bankers out of Boston uh, for some wealth managers. So so basically, kind of looking at the money and looking at uh, you know investments and how that's gonna you know last for not just our lifetime but for our kids. It's kind of general generational now. So you don't want to go out and just totally go crazy and then all of a sudden it goes down. So, you know, we've been good stewards with the money, but we like to travel. I think travel is one thing really that, uh, you know, we'll spend the money on our home. You know, we definitely spend a lot of money on our home, but there isn't really one big ticket thing that we said, okay, let's go buy this. Yeah, no worries. Just thought I'd ask. Yep. Stuart, this has been an amazing interview. I really appreciate you sharing such in, such candor because uh, it is really going to be helpful for people listening to this going through the same process you've been through. Your journey is a, an amazing story. So I just want to say thank you for on behalf of our listeners for sharing with us. Great. Thanks for having me on, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.